The Dodgers are your 2020 World Series champions. The New England Patriots have taken a nosedive in the NFL. And the Arizona Cardinals are your big winner. Rutgers Scarlet Knights, my Scarlet Knights, finally getting the job done, ending a streak of 21 straight losses in Big Ten play. They get a big win against Michigan State. And Trevor Lawrence testing positive for COVID-19. We've got that and much more coming up in one minute. Listening to This Week in Sports. Here's your host, The Pody. A warm welcome and hello, everybody. I'm your host, as always, The Pody. It is Saturday, October 31st, 2020. It is, of course, Halloween, so happy Halloween to everybody out there. A little bit different this year, obviously, with COVID going on. I don't know the rules and regulations of your town or your state, how how that's shaking out. We are celebrating Halloween here in uh, New Jersey. So far, haven't really gotten any trick-or-treaters, so I don't know. It's tough to say, you know, if you have young kids out there, if you're going to let them go out and trick-or-treat. I don't know. The candy is wrapped, but whether you want to put them in that situation, it is tough again because kids absolutely go bananas for this holiday, and I know I used to love it myself as a kid growing up, so it's a shame that we're still seven, what, eight months since this pandemic started and we're still going through this crap. It's possibly getting worse now as we hit the colder months. Here in Jersey, it's been raining, raining nonstop the last couple days. Cleared up a little bit last night and it was fine this morning, but it has been really starting to get cold. Weather in the, you know, the 30s now and, and you know, we're starting to turn from that fall weather to that more so winter weather as we uh, head into the month of November. But yes, it is Halloween, so happy Halloween to everybody that's out there listening. Without further ado, let's see. We're going to start with baseball, okay? The Dodgers, yes, they are your World Series champions in this 60-game shortened season. Whatever that's worth, they finally get over the hump, made it to the World Series, three out of the last four years, finally getting it done, beating the Rays. Well, let me explain just how we got to this moment where Dodgers were crowned World Series champs. Okay, pick this up with game five. LA already up two games to none. Jock Peterson homered to give the Dodgers a three to nothing lead. 
Um, and when I say already up 2-0, I mean already up 2-0 in the game, not the series. Bottom of the third with the Rays down 3-1. That man again, Randy Arozarena, he singles in a run to make it 3-2. Actually, he didn't have great numbers with runners in scoring position, but he does come through there. That single gave him the most hits in a single postseason with 27, I believe breaking Derek Jeter's uh, all-time mark. Uh, bottom of the fourth inning with two outs and runners on first and third. Manuel Margot tries to steal home against Clayton Kershaw. Not a bad move with a lefty on the mound, so back towards him if he is in uh, you know, the stretch there. But, I mean, what are you thinking? If you're going to steal home when you're losing, you better make it. It better not be close. Uh, I mean, you have got to be safe in this situation. And Margot was out, um, and it wasn't close. So, you know, Kershaw was having none of it. He throws home in time, and the Rays squander any chance they had of tying this game. And according to the Rays, you know, from what it looked like, Margot stole this, tried to steal home all on his own. And again, there's an old adage in baseball, don't make the first or third out at third base. You definitely better not make the third out at home plate, especially when you're losing three to two. And Margot should not have been in the lineup in game six, in my opinion, after that blunder. But I believe he actually was in the lineup. And of course, it goes back to all this analytics BS. There's no accountability for anybody. We'll get to that more so in a little while. But you go back to this game. Top five with the game still 3-2. Max Muncie goes yard, giving the Dodgers a 4-2 win. That that would be all that Clayton Kershaw needed. He goes five and two-thirds innings, six strikeouts, and the Dodgers win four to two to take the three-two series lead. And Kershaw, I think, finally putting to bed the naysayers, the postseason ERA, the World Series ERA of 5.4. He gets two wins in this season, very, very uh, in this series, very, very respectable ERA. Just got the job done in his two starts. And for Kershaw, what did this mean? Coming back in game five and getting the win, take a listen to what he had to say. Uh, let me just find it real quick. Okay. Uh, it just means that I've been on great teams that have gotten to go to the postseason a lot, and I've got to get a lot of starts in the postseason. So, uh, obviously, a very special opportunity. My kids are a little tired, if you can't tell, and uh, it's just a it's just a special thing to get to be a part of a team like this and get to be a part of some of those names. Hey. Hey. You know, anytime you can have success in the postseason, um, it's just as it just means so much. That's what you work for. That's what you play for um, this month. And you know, I, I know what the other end of that feels like too. So um, I'll definitely take it when I can get it. As you can hear a little bit there, Kershaw's kids cannot contain their excitement. Probably uh, doing much of the same today, being that it is Halloween. Um, okay, let's get to Game Six, which would be the clincher for the Dodgers.
Randy Arozarena gets things going yet again in a must-win elimination game. First inning solo homer to put the Rays up 1-0. Blake Snell was dealing lights out again. He had nine strikeouts through four innings, becoming the first to do that in a World Series game since Sandy Koufax in Game 1 of the 1963 World Series against the Yankees. However, in the sixth inning, Kevin Cash pulled Snell out of the game on only 73 pitches as Mookie Betts was coming to the plate. This was a classic analytics move. Numbers say third time through the order, Snell is no good. This is why pretty much all season they have taken Blake Snell out of every game through five innings or so. The problem with this move, let me just explain this, guys. Numbers do not indicate just how dominant Snell was. And not only that, but Cash went to Nick Anderson, who had a sub-1 ERA in the regular season, great, but who had given up a run in six straight postseason appearances. And you could tell when it's a bad move by the reaction from the Dodgers dugout. Mookie Betts started smiling at Dave Roberts. They started licking the chops because they could not touch Blake Snell. And you could see Blake Snell cursing when he saw Cash coming out to take him out of this game. There was one out in the sixth inning and the nine batter. I can't remember if it was uh, Will Smith or, or, or Matt Bar- I think it was Barnes who got a single up the middle. It didn't matter if he got Barnes out or not. They were making this move to take Snell out because the top of the order was coming up and it was all analytics based, all saber metrics. Okay. And so they take Blake Snell out and what immediately happens? Nick Anderson comes in, Mookie Betts doubles down the line. You've now got second and third with one out. He throws a wild pitch that gets away from uh, Mike Zanino and trickles towards the Dodger dugout and the tying runs able to come in. Then Corey Seager up at the plate. He grounds out the first base and much like in one of the earlier games, Mookie Betts just too fast. He slides in head first to give the Dodgers the lead. After all that with the Rays winning one nothing, they now pull Blake Snell out and shocker the Rays go down, and now the Dodgers have all the momentum and take the 2-1 to lead. Anderson, by the way, set the record by allowing a run in seven straight postseason relief appearances. So what analytics, mind you, tell you to not only take out your pitcher when he's absolutely dealing and then go to a pitcher who has been absolutely terrible in the postseason? So good going for all you, you, you analytic guys that are sitting in the Rays front office that decided upon that move and never played baseball a day in your life because it was one of the worst moves in the history of baseball, okay? And the Dodgers would then add a run in the eighth inning on a Mookie Betts solo home run. Julio Urias closed out the game, and the Dodgers, again, your 2020 World Series champs, their first title since 19. 19- 1988 and the seventh in franchise history. Of note, the Dodgers were 13 and 1 in the playoffs when Mookie recorded a hit. Corey Seager was named World Series MVP after winning the NLCS MVP. He wins World Series MVP. He was my unsung hero, helping me to a title in my fantasy league this year. And I did, I did uh, pick the Dodgers to win the World Series after the Yankees had been knocked out. 
And so here is just a little bit of audio from a couple players on the Dodgers sounding off on the World Series win. Take a listen. Obviously, I'm super happy, super happy just to, to win and be a part of some legacies. Doc has won one one plan and um, now now managing. Kirsch has been so close and you know, there's so many knocks about him in the playoffs, but you know, he carried us, man. He, he pitched amazing, you know, through this whole playoffs. And it's just uh, I've been saying, you know, World Series champs in my head over and over again just to see if it'll sink in. And um, it just so no, I, I can't put it into words yet. I'm just so so very thankful to be a part of this group of guys. Ah uh, man, I honestly don't even remember. You know, it, it was total joy. It was it was wanting to be with your teammates. You know, you wanting to be with your family, you wanting to be with my fiance. You know, it, it's just all these emotions run through you. And man, it, it was this is the time of my life. And if 2020 weren't a bizarre enough year in general, get this, guys. Justin Turner, Dodgers third baseman, was removed from the game in the seventh inning after it was announced that he had tested positive for coronavirus. He was tested on Monday. It came back inconclusive. So they tested him again. And apparently the results of that second test came back in the middle of the game. Even more oddly, Turner was celebrating the title on the field with teammates without a mask on. He did tweet out afterwards that he was feeling fine and had no symptoms, but it is curious to see what will come of this, if anything. And as for the city of LA, it is their second title in 16 days. Of course, the Lakers just won the title also in six games. And the Dodgers were able to return to L.A., but minus Justin Turner and his wife. And it's very weird because Justin Turner was sitting on the field celebrating with his teammates next to Dave Roberts, who is a cancer survivor. He was kissing his wife. And according to ESPN's Jesse Rogers, Turner's wife did test negative for COVID. The Dodgers third baseman continues to overshadow the team's win. Major League Baseball did release a statement saying that while a desire to celebrate is understandable, Turner's decision to leave isolation and enter the field was wrong and put everyone he came in contact with at risk. When MLB security raised the matter of being on the field with Turner, he emphatically refused to comply. Listen, I really... I understand where baseball's coming from, but I cannot fault Justin Turner. He's wanted this his whole life. Imagine winning a World Series and being told you cannot celebrate. It's it, no, you're going to celebrate and worry about the consequences later. I mean to to be told you have to basically just leave while the rest of your team celebrates and gets to enjoy it is kind of um is kind of terrible. And I don't agree with him. You know, he should have still had his mask on, but everybody else on that team, they knew the risks and they, you know, they weren't shunning him or anything. You know, they were right there taking pictures with him and whatnot. So yeah, so far, you know, nobody tested positive after this and and they just kept uh, Turner and his wife in Houston just for precautionary reasons. But here is Buster Olney with more. 
Major League Baseball has questions about after Justin was told to isolate where he went, who he talked to, were there Dodgers officials, Dodgers personnel that facilitated his return to the field. They want to get the answers to that. And, and look, we don't have a precedent for suspension under the health and safety protocol that was adopted by Major League Baseball and the Players Association, but there was an understanding between the two sides that discipline could be rendered for players or team personnel who ignored the protocol. So there you have it. Um, Very interesting to see what comes of this. But again, Dodgers are your 2020 World Series champions, so congratulations. Okay, next up, the White Sox, in a very surprising move, have gone out and hired... Tony LaRussa as their new manager. The Hall of Fame 76-year-old returns to the franchise where his managerial career began more than 40 years ago. He last managed the Cardinals to a championship in 2011. And interest, excuse me, interestingly enough, Jerry Reinsdorf, the owner of the Bulls, is also the owner of the Chicago White Sox. He apparently made the sole decision to hire Tony LaRussa. There's a bit of a mutiny in the uh, White Sox front office. A lot of people did not want Tony LaRussa to be the new manager. They don't believe as a 76-year-old, he's going to be able to connect with these younger generation of players and the whole analytics side of it and whatnot. But give me a break. Tony LaRussa is a baseball man through and through. He's won, what, three World Series. He, he's an unbelievable manager. He is third all-time with 2,728 wins, and I think this is a slam-dunk hire. Look, Jerry Reinsdorf, that's one of his great regrets, is letting Tony La Russa leave to the A's back in the 70s or early 80s. So to hire him back now um, with a young team that is on the rise that did make the postseason this year, I think it is a very, very good move. And here's Tony La Russa uh, on being named the new manager of the White Sox, where he started his career. The combination of looking forward to getting back down there and, and, and checking myself, you know, to, to have the energy and all that stuff. The White Sox making the call with a chance to win sooner rather than later. I'm excited that they made that choice and looking forward to what's ahead. And look, when I heard that they were were going to interview Tony Larusa, I said, look, OK, you don't interview a guy of Tony LaRusso's caliber at his age. You don't waste both each other's times if you're not seriously consider hiring him. So although I am a bit surprised, I'm not shocked by this. And it does make sense um, when you when you hear, you know, Jerry Reinsdorf and all these other uh, factors that went into this. And. Tony LaRussa now becomes the oldest active head coach in Major League Baseball, NFL, NBA, and NHL. And I think, I think he might be either the oldest or the second oldest manager hired. Jack McKeon uh, of the Miami Marlins was up there in age when they hired him as well. Um, and then the Tigers jumped on the train the next, the following day, I believe yesterday, hiring their new head coach. And that would be A.J. Hinch to be the 39th manager in Tigers history. Where have you heard the name A.J. Hinch? That's right. He previously 
manage the Houston Astros to the 2017 World Series championship. Of course, he was fired after last season because of the whole fallout from the cheating scandal, but he served his time as one-year suspension. I thought maybe he would come back to the Astros because they just, you know, they had a fill-in with Dusty Baker, but who knows, maybe because Dusty Baker uh, defied the odds and took them all the way to game seven of the uh, ALCS, maybe they're going to bring Dusty back. So big time move for the Tigers. Hinch, of course, is the form, you know, yeah, Hinch. One of the things I didn't realize about A.J. Hinch, he won 100 plus games in each of his last three seasons as manager, which is tied for the longest streak of 100 win seasons in Major League Baseball history. Again, how much of that was attributed to the cheating? Who knows? He claims he did not. He he was not part of that. He didn't know. But again, we'll never really understand the full scope of, of what went on with that cheating scandal. And of note as well, A.J. Hinch, a former catcher, he did catch 27 games for the Tigers back in 2003. Okay, that's going to wrap up our baseball talk. Our baseball segment is officially over. Um, free agency coming up. I know a lot of uh, the Yankees, they exercised the option on on uh, uh, Zach Britton. They declined it for Jay Happ and Brett Gardner, so we'll see what comes of that. And also of note, yesterday it became official. The owners uh, and Bill de Blasio, mayor of New York, finally approved Steve Cohen as the new owner of of the New York Mets. He's a New York guy through and through, grew up a Met fan. He was a uh, minority owner, tried to buy the Dodgers a few years back. That was denied. So finally, he is able to purchase the Mets, and he now becomes the richest owner in all of sports. He's worth over $14 billion. So yes, Met fans, today is your Christmas, and you can rejoice. Okay, let's talk NFL now. You've got uh, last week, the big matchup was the Titans and the Steelers. Matchup of two undefeated teams. I personally was all over the Steelers on this one. I picked them to win. I bet on them as well. Big Ben had the offense humming early, threw threw for 268 yards and two touchdowns, but the Titans wouldn't be undefeated if they didn't have a comeback or two up their sleeves. Down 24 to seven. Listen, I was on the golf course with my brother. He bet everything I bet, excuse me, last weekend. And we're checking the game. We're like, boom, up 24-7. Let's go. Because I had a parlay. And then I also took the uh, Steelers plus one and a half and over 50 and a half points. And so we're, we're seeing that the Steelers are up 24-7. It's like, let's go. All of a sudden, Titans start to mount a furious comeback to win this game. But it was a Steven Goskowski missed field goal with about 20 seconds left that gave the Steelers a 27-24 victory to improve to 6-0. If you're doing your math, the final score added up to 51 points exactly. So I hit the over by half a point, hit on that parlay, and got myself a good uh, 66 bucks there. But then sadly, I had the Packers over three, uh, excuse me, minus three and a half, and the over of 50, uh, 56, I think it was, and I missed it by one point. It was at 55. So, uh, yeah, that was that was a bummer there. Uh, but 
Next up, in a battle of Heisman winners, you had Baker Mayfield outlasting Joe Burrow, a, a you know battle of AFC North rivals. The Browns avoided a bad upset loss at the hands of the Bengals on Sunday. The Browns were down four when Baker got the ball back with under two minutes. He then put the team on his back and threw a game-winning touchdown pass to Donovan Peoples-Jones as the Browns outlast the Bengals 37-34. Here was Baker on that final touchdown pass to win the game. Actually, no, here's just the, the sound of that touchdown throw. Mayfield back to pass, throwing down the seam. It is caught in the end zone. For the touchdown, yes, and the Browns win 37-234. Of note in this game, OBJ, Odell Beckham Jr., did tear his ACL, and he is now out for the remainder of this season. Uh, that is a big loss there. Um, here's Kevin Stefanski on that. Yeah, obviously, it's a big loss. Uh, as everyone uh, knows, he's a huge part of, of what we do. So now we'll just have to huddle up and, and find some different ways and find some different people and put them in that role. And the energy he brings to practice, the energy he brings to games, no one else is going to be able to bring that type of juice. Yeah, um, there's a big argument that the Browns are better off without OBJ. I don't necessarily agree with all that. Can he be a headache? Is it all about finding OBJ the ball? Yes, but the Browns right now don't have to think about that. They are 5-2 and two and firmly in position for a playoff spot. Brady and the Bucks continue to steamroll everybody. On Sunday, he passed Drew Brees to become the all-time leader in passing touchdowns with 559. He threw four of them on the day as the Bucks beat the Raiders 45 to 20, improving to a an impressive five and two. They're my Super Bowl pick. Since the bad loss to the Bears on Thursday night football, Brady and the Bucks have looked unstoppable. Five and two, that's a great team win. Leaving the Death Star victorious. As for Brady's former team, the Patriots, well, let's just say they've had better days. Cam Newton threw three INTs and was subsequently benched for Jared Stidham, who wasn't much better throwing a pick of his own. The whole Brady versus Belichick, which one is more valuable to the team, is proving to be an easy call. Look, I was always an advocate for Brady, even when most experts said Bill Belichick, Bill Belichick, Bill Belichick. I know what it's like as a Jets fan to have Mark Sanchez and Rex Ryan, okay? Imagine if those 0-9-10 Jet teams had Tom Brady as their quarterback. Would have been Super Bowl champs both years without question, okay? So whether it comes down, coaching is a big part of this, yes, but if you don't have the player, if you don't have that Hall of Fame quarterback, you're not going to win a Super Bowl. So I'm sorry, Bill Belichick, he's going to go down as the greatest coach of all time probably, but without Tom Brady, he is nothing. And Tom Brady's proving that because he's in Tampa Bay. He's got them five and two. Look, Bruce Arians in Tampa Bay, he, he had Jameis Winston last year and they couldn't win a lick. Okay, they could not get it done. And now with Tom Brady and virtually the same team, granted, they brought in Leonard Fournette. He's barely played. Okay, they brought in Gronk. He hasn't done too much starting to catch some touchdowns now. Okay, and they brought in Antonio Brown, who will be able to play next week after his suspension finishes up this week in week eight. But otherwise, this is largely the same team plus a 42 year old Tom Brady. 
So don't tell me the quarterback doesn't make the difference. And also, on the flip side, I've also seen Aaron Rodgers win a Super Bowl with Mike McCarthy as head coach. Look how well Mike McCarthy is doing right now in Dallas. They hate him, and he's going to get fired after this season. I guarantee you that. There are arguments to be made in, of course, cases where if you want to say, okay, well, look, the, the Bucs and, and, and John Gruden, they won, a, they won a Super Bowl with Brad Johnson as their quarterback, or, you know, Trent Dilfer won a, won a Super Bowl. Both subpar quarterbacks, right? But don't get me wrong. They had great head coaches, okay? Belichick, like I said, probably the greatest, right? But I can't say I feel bad for them now that they are struggling and have no quarterback. I just hope they beat my Jets so we can, you know, have our pick with the number one, uh, you know, pick overall. And how the mighty have fallen after week two, everyone was anointing Cam the savior, right? But COVID forced him to not be able to practice for two weeks, and now the wheels are quickly coming off. The Pats are now 2-4 and four and have a league-worst three touchdown passes from their quarterbacks and a league high of 11. Think about that. They only have three touchdown passes from quarterbacks. Tom Brady had four on Sunday. I mean, wowzer. Wowzer, wowzer, wowzer. And Brady has thrown 18 touchdowns to only four picks and has 1,910 yards passing, nearly 700 more yards than any Patriots quarterbacks combined. Oh, and I did almost forget to mention the Pats lost to their former quarterback, Jimmy Garoppolo on Sunday, 33 to six. The guy that was supposed to be the heir apparent to TB12 before Belichick decided to ship him off to San Francisco. There is a big argument um, through NFL circles right now on whether or not the Patriots are going to be sellers at the trade deadline. That will be interesting to see. The only saving grace for the Pats suffering their worst home loss under Bill Belichick was indeed the Dallas Cowboys losing 25-3 to the Redskins. Andy Dalton was knocked out of the game with a concussion when this game was 22-3 and none of his teammates came to his defense. It was a vicious, nasty, possibly dirty hit and none of his teammates came to his defense. Very shocking. Uh, since Dak went out, that team looks to have given up. There's a lack of leadership. The players are throwing shade at the coaches, and it starts at the top. I'm, I said it a few minutes ago. Mike McCarthy is going to be fired after this season. It's, it's, it's evident. I mean, we could see it. This team is not playing hard, and now they are forced to start a seventh-round pick out of James Madison in Ben DiNucci against the Eagles. I mean, it wouldn't it be so 2020 if this kid comes out there and Dallas gets a win? My goodness. Um, but I just do not see that happening at all. And as for the nightcap, like I said at the top of the hour, at the top of the show, your Arizona Cardinals, well, not yours, maybe it is yours if you're a fan, but the Arizona Cardinals are your big winners on Sunday night football, beating the undefeated Russell Wilson-led Seattle Seahawks in overtime. I didn't even watch the game end or go to overtime. I was so tired, I just had to go to sleep. I saw right when Russell Wilson ended up throwing a bad interception in the end zone or right around the end zone, and then the Cardinals came back, tied it up, won in overtime. Um, look, Russell didn't have a great game. He's an early MVP candidate, but threw three interceptions on the night. However, my goodness, him and Tyler Lockett had it 
working from the jump. Lockett had 15 receptions on 20 targets to a tune of 200 yards and three touchdowns. But Kyler Murray wouldn't back down. He's like that pesky little fly that won't stop buzzing in your ear. They somehow forced overtime after being down 10 with about five minutes left. Ultimately, uh, Russell Wilson threw an, uh, a touchdown pass to DK Metcalf in overtime, but it got called back on a, I think, holding penalty. And, you know, from there on, the 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 Cardinals got it back and were able to drive down the field, setting up the game-winning Zane Gonzalez field goal. Seahawks unbeaten no more as they fall 37-34. to And here's Kyler on the wild, wild finish. Go back and forth in overtime. I've actually, I don't think I've ever been a part of something like that. Um, you know, miss a field goal, interception. Um, yeah, that's a, that was a crazy game. And um, glad we came out on top. As for Monday Night Football, the Rams came into this one six and a half point favorites, and they showed exactly why. I argued with my friends that said that this is the dumbest spread ever. Take the Bears, take the Bears. And I said, no, they know something that I don't or that you don't. And that is that the Bears can't score points. How are they going to score? And I proved to be right. I should have bet this game. I told my buddies not to bet the Bears, and they didn't listen to me. The Rams just dominating their defense destroying that offense for the bears i mean nick Foles couldn't do anything uh they held the bears to just three points of offense on the night both teams now five and two and firmly in the playoff mix the rams just happened to play in the toughest division in football they added another playoff spot this season so it is possible that the entire nfc west makes the playoffs i don't see it happening but it is a possibility um the Bears did get a score late, a defensive score that is, and they lost like 24 to 10. Uh, Sean McVay, well, he he was pleased with his team's efforts. It's hard to say one thing. I think I was pleased with everything that they did. I thought they flew around. I thought we were great. Really, in every area of the game, uh, they held them to three points. That was all that they got. We had some huge stops when they were down in the tight red area. Um, so they just they just did a great job. And get this, since 2001. The Bears have eight games with at least one defensive touchdown and zero offensive touchdowns. So don't tell me quarterbacks do not matter. Uh, Matt Nagy, not too happy. I have no idea, but I don't. I don't ever remember having our own defense score more than our offense. That that's that's uh, that's hard to do. So um, that part I don't like, and um, that bothers me. That breaks a tie, guys, with the Ravens for the most such games over that span with a defensive touchdown and zero offensive touchdowns. Now, here's Lewis Riddick. He is got a heart. He, he, he's bringing it. Uh, he is not thrilled with the Bears. He is keeping it real with Bear fans, and he is letting them know that it is going to be tough sledding here on out for the rest of the season. Their margin for error is about like that on offense. And if the defense isn't playing up to snuff or the special teams aren't making big plays, every game's going to be a grind. And when you come up against a team like this that can match you blow for blow and they may have better personnel, this may be the result. So I'll tell you what, for Chicago Bear fans, strap in. It's going to be that kind of a season. Let's get to our Thursday night game, the first game in week eight. You have the Falcons and the Panthers. I saw the over-under in this game at 52 points. 
And I said to myself, are you God? Are you kidding me? I thought this is a no brainer. Bet the under. I wanted, I double checked the weather. I saw there was going to be some heavy rain around nine, 10 o'clock. And I said, you know what? Screw it. I'm going to take the under. Last time these two teams played, they hit the under. Of course, that was still under Dan Quinn. And that was with no Julio Jones. And of course, the Panthers won that game. Coming into this one, Panthers are three and four. The uh, Falcons, what, were one and six, I think. It was pretty much a calm 70 degree or so night in the beginning. And it showed because there were some points being put up. The Falcons were dominating that first quarter. Julio Jones and Matt Ryan had it going on. Julio amassing 85 yards very quickly in that first quarter. It was back and forth all night. Calvin Ridley, I think this was in the third quarter after a big catch and run, was removed from the game due to an ankle injury and he would not return. There was a scary moment in the third quarter when Teddy Bridgewater was tripped by Dante Fowler trying to step up in the pocket. And then as he's falling to the ground, he takes a late hit to the head and neck area by Falcons defensive end Charles Harris, who would then be ejected. And Bridgewater was forced into, you know, the the concussion tent there to be checked out on. And here's what he had to say uh, about that hit and how he was feeling, um, you know, afterwards uh, from from that hit. Play of stepping up in the pocket. I just knew uh, someone stuck their leg out from Atlanta. And, um, you know, as as I was was tripped, I was just stumbling. And uh, I knew at some point guys would be swarming, so I just tried to get, I just tried to get down, protect myself, and uh, I don't really know who hit me. Uh, just know someone got ejected. Yep, Charles Harris was the guy that got ejected. He, uh, Bridgewater would uh, sit out a series and a half, but then he did return. He tried to mount a game tying drive because the Falcons' young young way coup missed an extra point to make it an eight point game. So I was fuming now because under was fifty two. So I needed 51 points or less. And because he missed that extra point, it was an eight-point game. If the if the Panthers went down and scored, they would have went for two. If they would have gotten that two-point conversion, it would have been, what, I think 51 points. And then uh, they would have gone to overtime and a field goal, I would have been dead in the water. So luckily, Teddy Bridgewater was not able to mount the comeback. He did throw an interception. And the Falcons did something they usually don't do. They held on to a fourth quarter lead and win this one 25 to 17. Here's Matt Ryan on the much needed victory. We've had some crazy losses, you know, just to, to be frank. And, and I really believe that we've got the you know caliber of team to go be in every game. We're going to play the rest of the season. And, and why can't we win them all? You know, that's that's the mindset that I have. All right, let us let me real quick talk to you about some of my bets that I like this week. First of all, last week I did something I've not done before. I did alternate spreads. So I took a bunch of teams, I think four or five games, that I really liked teams to win, and I took alternate spreads. So teams I thought were going to win, and I gave them uh, I gave them like spreads of plus five or plus three and a half, so they were now like the dog in this. For example... So let me log in real quick to my DraftKings app just so I could show you exactly what the bet was. And I hit big on it. Uh, I bet $50. It was a parlay. So I, I laid 50, which is a lot for a parlay. But because I'm getting the alternate spreads, I felt so good about this. And I, I was excited that I that I did hit. So here it was. So 
The Bills, I was torn with the Bills. I did say to take the Bills with the spread, but it kept dropping and dropping and dropping. Everyone was laying money on the Jets that I took an alternate spread bet and I got the Bills at minus two and a half. Of course, they only won the game 18 to 10, so they didn't cover the 10-point spread. So I win there getting the Bills at minus two and a half. Now that was minus 360. So you'd obviously have to bet $360 to win 100. So not great odds. Then I took the Green Bay Packers, who I thought were going to steamroll Houston. I took them, even though I thought they were going to win, I play it safe. I take them plus three and a half with the alternate spread at minus 240. Got Pittsburgh Steelers, who were my big pick of the week. Got them at plus five and a half, which was minus 210 because they were already underdogs by about a point or two. Then I took the Tampa Bay Buccaneers at plus three and a half. I figured they would win anyway. They were minus 295. And then finally, the closest really spread that I was a little concerned with here was the Saints and the Panthers. But I got the Saints at plus three and a half, and that was minus 385. I laid $50 and I won. 227. So, you know, 227 minus the 50. I won like 180 bucks on that bet. And then I, again, I won the $66, uh, $41 from the Steelers uh, covering and the over minus the 25 I put up for the Packers and the under and the over there. So, uh, yeah, I won over 200 bucks on Sunday. It was a great day. Got to play some golf in the rain. I am going to do another, another one of those alternate spread bets. And I sent it to my brother and this is what I like right now. Um, I sent it to him here, and this is probably what I'm going to do. So you guys might want to jump on this. And this is uh, getting a 20% profit boost on DraftKings because each leg has to be, I think, minus 250 or worse or, or better. Um, so it can't be like my, like the last week one where I had minus 385. So I'm taking the Steelers plus 7.5 against the Ravens, the Vegas Raiders plus 7 at the Browns, the Tennessee Titans minus one and a half at the Bengals and the Saints minus one at Chicago Bears. Interestingly enough, no Michael Thomas in this one. And it was just announced that uh, wide receiver for the Bears, Allen Robinson, past concussion protocol, he will play. So uh, to recap, that's Steelers at plus seven and a half, which is minus 195. The Raiders at plus seven, which is minus 245. The Titans at minus one and a half, which is minus 215 and the saints at minus one and that's minus 210 look i don't feel as confident as i did last week but i still feel very good about this parlay and this has a much bigger payout um i believe the payout for this one is 212 dollars with the profit boost so a little more than i got last week so I'm feeling good about that. And those are those are my picks. And then, of course, I love me the Bucks on Monday Night Football against the Giants. I think that's just a no-brainer. So that'll that'll do it for all, you know, my week seven recap and, and my week eight predictions. And we'll now jump right in and talk a little college football. We got to start with Wisconsin because after an incredible start to his redshirt freshman season, one in which he started 14 of 14 passing. Quarterback Graham Mertz is now on the shelf for three weeks after testing positive for COVID, and it doesn't stop there. 12 members within the program have tested positive as of Wednesday. I think that has uh, ballooned even more now, including their head coach, Paul Christ. All team activities have been paused for at least seven days. Look, the Big Ten, when they returned, they implemented very strict guidelines and protocols for when somebody tests positive for COVID. They must sit out 
at least the you know three weeks. They could come back possibly sooner, but they do have to see a cardiologist, make sure they don't have any of that myocarditis with the enlarged heart vessels and whatnot. So uh, Saturday's game against Nebraska has been canceled. There will be no makeup. And speaking of Nebraska, they did try to go out and schedule a game against uh, UT Chattanooga to replace with Wisconsin, but the Big Ten and Commissioner Kevin Warren ultimately denied them again because if you remember back to the summer when the season was canceled originally, Nebraska wanted to go out and play games independently of the conference, and that was also shut down. They did release a statement saying they totally understand and and they stand you know by the decision of the Big Ten. Uh, as for Wisconsin, they are a cautionary tale. This can happen to any team. Listen, here's Heather Dinich with more on this breakout and what the Big Ten is doing to fix this. This has the potential to happen to any school at any time in any conference. As far as the Big Ten is concerned, they put out rules recently saying if everyone does play eight games, teams have to play at least six games in order to participate in the Big Ten Conference Championship game. Wisconsin, if they get these games in, they can be on track. They can still be in the conversation for the Big Ten Championship game. Yeah, Wisconsin is one of those teams that is definitely going to need, I think any Big Ten team right now, because of their limited schedule, because of the late start time, they are going to need to win the Big Ten uh, title and probably go undefeated to make that CFP. Um, so there you have that. And, and it remains to be seen if their game against Purdue will also be canceled the fo- uh, next week as well. Also, speaking of positive tests for COVID, presumptive number one overall pick Clemson quarterback Trevor Lawrence has himself tested positive for COVID. He will isolate for te- uh, the announcement did come Thursday night. He will now isolate for 10 days before returning to practice, assuming he does not have any symptoms. He will miss He's missing today's game versus BC, and his status against number four Notre Dame is now in question. He took to Twitter to say that his symptoms are relatively mild, and he will be watching his team from isolation and can't wait to, excuse me, rejoin the Tigers. Speaking of the Tigers, they are losing 21 to 10 right now to Boston College. They came into this one 20 and a half point favorites, and. They must be taking BC very lightly because, um, yeah, 21 to 10. They were at the one-yard line. They fumbled. It was returned by BC all the way the other way for a, for a score. Um, there's seven minutes left in, this, in the first half, and they're down 21 to 10. They did just score, actually. And then also what's very crazy right now is that Michigan State, who Rutgers just beat, and they looked horrible. They turned the ball. There were 10 turnovers in that game. Never seen anything like it. Michigan State is on the road against number 13, Michigan. There's seven minutes to go in the first half, and Michigan State is winning this game 14-7. to Just incredible. And speaking of incredible, Maryland last night with the upset of the year so far, beating Minnesota. They were 20-and-a-half-point dogs at home, no less. That's how much the uh, the books were were, were you know were, were feeling uh, Maryland. But guess what? Maryland has a quarterback with the last name of Tagovailoa. 
Yes, Tua's brother Talia. And he was absolutely dealing all night long. They went up early. Then Minnesota came back. It went up 28 to 21. It was one of those like crazy back and forth games. But Talia finishes 26 of 35 for a, for 458 total yards and five total touchdowns. I believe he had like 60 plus, almost 70 rushing yards and, a, and another score. And this game would go to overtime and... Unbelievably enough, Minnesota kicker misses an extra point in overtime and Maryland wins the game. And of note in this game, I've never heard anything like this. This game featured, this was last night, by the way, this game featured two 200-yard rushers. Jake Funk, this white guy from uh, Maryland, had 221 rushing yards and Muhammad Ibrahim had 202. There have only been two Big Ten conference games since 2004 that featured dueling 200-yard rushers. My goodness. Um, Just, yeah, so that was a crazy game to shake up the Big Ten a little bit with Minnesota losing. And now we get to talk about my Rutgers Scarlet Knights. They got it done last week, snapped a streak of 21 consecutive games, losing in the conference They down Michigan State. They were 13, 12-point underdogs at Michigan State. They got it done. Like I said, they forced like eight, seven or eight turnovers by Michigan State, and they got a big win there. They take on Indiana at home today at 3.30. Funny quick story about that. Last year, of course, you guys will remember, I was all over betting against Rutgers every game. The spreads were over 30. I was just betting them every single game, right? Well, this year... Uh, The site I was using, I don't feel like using it. It's like outside the States anyway, and it's just annoying and a hassle. Uh, I like my FanDuel, DraftKings. So me and my brother, I, I checked what the line was against Indiana because so, okay, background on this. Indiana had to play Penn State, number eight Penn State. Of course, last week was everybody's first game in the Big Ten. Indiana came back with just incredible game. They score a touchdown late to tie it. They need a two-point conversion Uh. To, you know, to, they they scored the touchdown. Now they need a two point conversion to tie it, and they go with the quarterback draw. I look at the play. I'm like, oh my god, he's going to get stuffed. He sidesteps a guy and he gets into the end zone. So tie game. Then on the ensuing kickoff, there's like maybe 45, 50 seconds left. The kicker like squibs it to the first guy on the line, and Penn State jumps on it at like close to the 45 or 50 yard line. And my goodness, the Indiana head coach is losing his marbles, going nuts. Somehow, some way, Penn State just decides, oh, we're going to throw the ball out of bounds on like second and one or third down, and we're just going to kick like a 57-yard field goal. Of course, the guy doesn't make it, and this game goes to overtime where Penn State scored first, Indiana gets the ball, they score a touchdown, and then Indiana is like, we're not going for one, we're going for two, and the win, and the quarterback for Indiana absolutely just lays his life on the line. He rolls out left. He dives for the pylon. The ball hits the ground, comes loose. It was it out of bounds. Was it not? Was it a good touch? Was it a you know touchdown? Was it not? Did the conversion count? They rule yes. They review it. It was so freaking close. I still don't know till this very moment if it counted or not. But because they went with yes on the field, they had to stick with the call. So Indiana gets the win. It is their first win 
against a top 10 opponent since 1987. Immediately, Indiana jumps into the top 25, ranked number 17 as they head to Piscataway today to take on my Rutgers Scarlet Knights. But this is a classic trap game. The uh, Indiana Hoosiers are like, they started the week off maybe 13-point, 12-point favorites. I actually drove to PA with my brother on Wednesday night Okay, to meet Robert Frank to do a you know workout at a Crunch Gym there, just over the border in like Fairless Hills, just past Trenton. It took us like thirty five minutes to get there only, and I just jumped on my phone as soon as I got there. The app changed over; it showed me the Rutgers line. Me and my brother both bet Rutgers at minus eleven. We we I mean at plus eleven. Excuse me. I truly believe Rutgers could actually win this game straight up, but I didn't want the trip to be worthless, so I took them at plus eleven. I laid a hundred bucks. It was minus one hundred nine, so I'll win ninety two if they if they cover that game's coming up at 330 all right um and then you know we'll, we'll see what happens i think this is a classic game where a team coming off a huge upset victory the next week they just absolutely lay an egg and i really like what i saw from greg shiano and a bunch of you know outcast transfers that came into Rutgers. noah vidral and a couple of these receivers and Pacheco and the defense. I mean, seven turnovers against Michigan State. Uh, that's incredible. So, uh, yeah, go Scarlet Knights. And this year we might be betting in favor of Rutgers in most of these games if they're going to continue to have these crazy uh, 12 double-digit point spreads, especially in a game where they are at home uh, today. So, yeah. And then real quick, Oklahoma State, Texas, that game's on at 4 o'clock. I got plus 200 odds on DraftKings for either team, little Halloween trick-or-treat type thing that they were throwing out there with a promo. I was torn between going with Texas on the road as three-and-a-half-point underdogs or taking uh, Oklahoma State, who's currently 4-0, ranked number six in the country. Rankings to me uh, right now this year don't mean a whole lot. Um, but I don't think that Gundy over there at Oklahoma State can ever really win a big game. And this is just straight up money line. So I, it's 25 bucks to win 50. And I was torn back and forth. And then I went, decided to go with Texas. Um, I asked my sister, pick one, Texas or Oklahoma State. She said Texas. And I started to lean towards that way anyway, just because of what Sam Ellinger has been able to do, his capabilities. I don't know a whole lot about Oklahoma State, the Cowboys, but it looks like they have a freshman quarterback now. I don't know if someone got hurt or they just uh, benched somebody because he wasn't playing well, but they've got a freshman. I'm not going against Sam Ellinger, who's having an absolutely monster season. He's got 17 scores through the air, and I think another seven on the ground. He's their leading rusher. I mean, he's getting it all done and, you know, can't go against that. All right, that wraps it up for college football. Let's jump in real quick. One quick note um, in the NBA, the Houston Rockets have found a new head coach. The team hired former Dallas Mavs assistant Steven Silas. He will. It will be his first time as a head coach coming 40 years after his father, Paul Silas, did the same for the San Diego Clippers. Paul and Steven Silas are the fifth father-son combination to both be head coaches in the NBA. Paul racked up 387 regular season wins in the league and was famously LeBron James's first coach in the league with the Cavaliers. Okay, and then if that's not enough, um, what was I going to say? Oh, Mike D'Antoni has agreed to join Steve Nash's coaching staff with the Brooklyn Nets. So they quickly become one of the most, if not the most, intriguing team to watch 
in the upcoming 2020-2021 season, possibly 21 season. We don't know if they're going to start in December or January yet. It's looking more like it could be late December, early January for the NBA. And then uh, last but not least, let's talk on this date in sports. It was 18 years ago when Herm Edwards reminded us why we play the game. This is what the greatest thing about sports is. You play to win the game. Hello? You play to win the game. You don't play to just play it. That's the great thing about sports. You play to win. And I don't care if you don't have any wins. You go play to win. When you start telling me it doesn't matter, then retire. Get out. Because it matters. All right, guys, that's going to wrap this episode up. It's been fun. I hope everybody enjoys their Halloween. Tomorrow is daylight savings time. And uh, Tuesday, November 3rd, obviously, is the election, the presidential election. So if you have not voted, get out there and vote. And, you know, we'll see what happens with that. I'm curious to see how they go about counting all the ballots and how long we have to wait before we know who becomes the next president of the United States. But again, enjoy your weekend, guys. Enjoy your Halloween. Go watch some sports, maybe win some money. Stay safe, stay healthy. I will see everybody next week for another episode of This Week in Sports. This is the Pody signing off.